0: Welcome to the Light Plus Podcast from Lighthouse. I'm Elia Habib, and in this series, we have spoken to the artists and creators behind the work selected for the Alternate Reality Tool, coming from this year's Sheffield DocFest. To wrap up the series, we are bringing you a recorded conversation of a panel talk with artists Georgie Pinn and Darren Emerson. We discussed their artistic practice during a public panel talk that I had the privilege to host with Ali Beddoes, the Artistic Director at Lighthouse. During the talk, we explored themes such as new media of storytelling, audience participation as creative practice, and their respective artistic explorations of technologies, notably in virtual reality and in machine learning. Needless to say, the evening was very enriching, and I, on behalf of Lighthouse, am very excited to share it with you. At the start of the talk, we've invited each other to randomly pick a biography to introduce each other. So let's start with that, and I will catch you up after the talk.
1: Darren, do you want to start?
2: Okay, I've got Ellie. Okay. <laughs> Darren Emerson <laughs> <laughs> is a director, producer, and co-founder of London production company ECity City Films, and its subsidiary, VR City. Uh, Darren is a passionate advocate of VR storytelling. <laughs> he has experienced considerable success <laughs> with his VR film, Witness 360 7, 7, and his VR documentaries, Indefinite and Common Ground.
3: Okay. Hi, I'm Ali Bedos. <laughs> Um Ali Beddows is, light, is Lighthouse's um, artistic Director and CEO. Ali leads the artistic and strategic vision and program for the Lighthouse with a focus on representing an inspiring and challenging range of voices and art forms in art technology and society.
1: I believe it. Uh, Elia Habib is our program intern at Lighthouse. They have recently graduated for Moving Image at Brighton University. They are a politically engaged artist and inspiring polymath, and they have basically just produced all of alternate realities for us, and they have been extraordinary. They've been on the floor and painted the walls and been in the
0: virtual sky, and I can't thank you enough. Georgie Pinn is the creator of Echo, that you might have seen upstairs. Um, she has 17 years of experience working as a director and producer in film, animation, sound composition, and public cultural events. For the last six years, Georgie has been developing a range of motion-tracking-based applications that bring animation to an interactive live arena. She's awesome.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. So we're going to hear from Darren first. Uh,
2: Hello. Hi. Um, I'm Darren. So um, I run a company called E-City Films. Uh, We are based in... London in the east of the city, and, um, <laughs> or, we, or we were. Anyway, we've actually just moved slightly more central. And uh, I've been running that for 12 years actually, and in that time we've done lots of different things. We started off doing music videos and uh, live music, and that was kind of our background. And I think we sort of, uh, around about year seven of that, we sort of were starting to run out of enthusiasm for filming bands and uh, yeah and and the music industry was hard so it it, it kind of culmin, it, it sort of coincided with a time when we were asked to do some 360 video and 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 that kind of you know we didn't really know what we were doing uh, we just kind of experimented you know behind closed doors which is often the best way to do your research and development when no one's watching and through that I I went out and I I made my first documentary in VR, which was called uh, Witness 360. So here on the screen is, is I've directed probably about 15 or so different VR pieces for people like the National Theatre, BBC, uh, lots of brand clients and all that kind of stuff. Uh, But these three pieces of work are the work that that I guess are more sort of my original pieces of work um, and they are the things that I'm sort of best known for. Um, In 2015 uh, was when I made Witness 360 uh, 7.7. And really, I didn't really know very much about what I was doing at at this point. But I knew I wanted to make a documentary in immersive media. I knew it was going to be in 360. And we had sort of acquired, I guess, some of the tools to be able to do that. Although the tools now are much easier uh, in which to do it in terms of post-production and also the filming and the cameras. Back then, we still had kind of a hacked sort of way of doing it. But yeah, so this was, um, it was 2015 and it, and, it, and it was 10 years since the 7-7 bombings in London. And I just thought it was, a, it was an interesting subject to, to kind of uh, start doing. So I, I contacted this lady and um, through a charity uh, that represents survivors of the 7-7 bombings. Who are sort of represented by this charity because they get a lot of conspiracy uh, theorists contacting them and, and, and telling them that it didn't happen and, and they're all liars. So I emailed this charity and and, <coughs> and told them what I wanted to do and that I believed them, which is a good start. And I, I, I got contacted by a few people. One of those people was Jackie Putnam. And we just kind of hit it off, really. I mean, we, we met at King's Cross in a bar. I was telling Ali earlier, it was one of those conversations with somebody where. Even though it's very noisy there, it's like it, it was kind of the kind of conversation that you want to record straight away because you're like, this, this person's amazing. She'd been through a lot, but she was really um, resilient. She's really articulate about her story and what it meant. And, and so she agreed to do it at the time in terms of 360 and VR. like I approached it really from an audio perspective first. So we um, did a really long interview at our house. Uh, she drank a about a bottle of wine while we did it. And then we came out with about three hours' worth of material, and and from that I sort of crafted 15 minutes' worth of audio, to which I got people to listen to it, and I'd kind of put soundtrack on it and stuff like that or experimented with that a little bit. Everyone that listened to it was really deeply affected by it, just in audio. And so I kind of knew at that point that once I started layering on imagery that we would have something that would be quite powerful. So the piece itself sort of is, is... Obviously a documentary of the events of that day, it, it puts you in her position, but really what it's about, I think, is when the bomb goes off, uh, it takes you into a much more metaphorical space. We wanted to play at the time with the idea of, of being sort of in sort of Jackie's sort of brain, where that, in, in a moment of sort of crisis and extreme sort of fear, like where would her, her mind go? and it wouldn't be necessarily in, in in the sort of kind of black hellhole that was the tunnel, but it would be somewhere else. And and so she tells the story, and, and really you're surrounded by overgrown uh, railway tracks that have been sort of taken over by nature, and we deal with sort of flashbacks and... PTSD. I think really at the end of the day this documentary I mean it's very special to me this documentary because it's the first one I made in this sort of medium and and I still sort of kind of when people see it today even though it's not got necessarily all the bells and whistles of common ground uh, in terms of interactivity it's still I think deeply affecting and it still works in a way that immersive media should work and for me I guess I'd sum up this piece of work by saying that it's about sort of the worst of human nature in terms of the bombing, but it's also about the best in human nature, about resilience, about somebody finding moments of real connection and kindness from other people that help her out, whether that be a uh, counsellor or psychologist that that understands PTSD, or somebody in the tunnel that gives her a hug and and tells her that it's going to be okay. I have to acknowledge the fact that I was quite lucky. You know, I made that uh, and really, we made it for very little money. We just made it off, you know. We just made it internally in our in our office, and I sort of drove that because I wanted to do it. And there's it really only about really probably about three of us who, who really worked on it properly. It just so happened to be at a time where VR was just kind of starting up, and so it got watched by a lot of people, and um, and and it and it did really well, and that and that was really lucky for me. Uh, I'm not, you know. Uh, that, you know, I, w- I want to kind of definitely sort of acknowledge that. You know, timing is everything. Indefinite is a documentary about, as you can read, the in- the UK's indefinite detention system. And this was um, something I didn't really know about. I was researching another story, which was about stowaways in uh, planes, who had one that had landed on on a roof on an office building called Not on the High Street in West London and uh, and had died, obviously. But uh, on the same plane, somebody had survived and it's very rare for somebody to survive. And through a bit of sort of investigation, I managed to speak to the policeman in charge and found out the name of this person and that they had been taken to a hospital in Hillingdon in West London and then taken, once they've recovered, taken to a place called Harmonsworth. I didn't really know what Harmonsworth was, and I feel a little bit ashamed to say that, but Harmonsworth is a detention centre, and there are detention centres all over the UK uh, which are built to Category B prison standards. They are prisons, essentially, and people that are, don't have leave to remain, as they call it, or like the rights sort or of documentation or maybe asylum seekers often get put into detention centres. The UK is still the only country in Europe that does not have a time limit on that. So people can be put in and they don't know when they're coming out. You know, often for balance, you know, that's a couple of weeks or a month. But sometimes, and, and also quite, you know, frequently, that's a long period of time. And so through trying to find this, this, this guy that was in Harmonsworth, I met another charity called Detention Action. Essentially, they wouldn't help me find this guy because it would totally screw up their access to, to the detention centres that they had got permission to, to go into, and they were helping people, so I couldn't mess with that. But they did have a group of people that had survived the detention estate, and they were called freed voices. And so working with them, and there were people from all over different places, Sri Lanka, South Africa, Sudan, you know, they were people that had been through the system. And through talking with them... In doing interviews again with them, starting with sound, we started to piece together what was a journey through the detention uh, system from the beginning to being sort of released and being tagged and still really not getting on with your life. So it's voiced by different people in different sections and, and for this we sort of kind of, whereas Witness 360 is quite simple, this sort of starts to expand on what we're trying to do. We use a uh, computer animation for to realize somebody who's in detention, their voice, and you're underwater. We use spatial sound, which we hadn't used before. And essentially, it's a series of vignettes that use different techniques. And you can see probably from, from, from what I've been doing, I'm sort of drawn to, I guess, social justice issues and trying to immerse people. I think for me, like VR is important to try and to reflect what is all around us th- but we can't see, you know, to kind of strip down those kind of layers and, and, and play with that. And for me, these k- sorts of issues uh, are things that are, are I'm, I'm really interested in, in sort of discovering and, 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 and giving sort of voice to people uh, that might not normally get a voice and, and putting people in those places. Which, you know, so Common Ground was commissioned by CreativeXR it's part of the Creative fix, the first cohort of CreativeXR, and it's a continuation, I guess, of of the things I'm interested in. But this time, it's it's a longer documentary. It's half an hour, where the other ones were more about 15 minutes, and sort of it looks more in depth at our relationship with uh, social housing, and and how that's changed over the years. And particularly, it looks at the Ellsbury Estate in South East London, uh, and that has been... Uh, regenerated at the time as as we speak actually and and so this was the first piece that wasn't just 360 it involved interaction it involves 3D worlds photogrammetry models and and so it's certainly a sort of again another progression of, of 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 what we've been doing so yeah so so that's that's it really um I do want to acknowledge, and he's going to hate me for doing this, but Conan Roberts, who's who's at the back there, and he's going to hide. I'm not going to get to stand up or anything, but all of those pieces of work he's been involved with quite heavily, and certainly, you know, Common Ground and Indefinite, we worked on quite a lot, and I'm sure we did some on Witness as well, and I really couldn't have made them without him. He's he's um, somebody who does a lot of the tricky sort of technical things that, that my brain can't do, and I just want to thank him. All the things I've made that I've just shown you are UK based. When it comes to these things, because they take a quite a long time and there's a lot of investment personally. And also, you know, coinciding with a time in my life where I've just where I've had two children. And and that was a big factor, it's like I wanted to look at what was around me. Also I feel like and this is certainly the case in VR, that there's a lot of filmmakers, especially at the beginning in three sixty, that were going out and making stories in the African sub- continent and around the world and 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 they're they're okay pieces of work you know i'm not going to criticize the work necessarily but i don't feel for me as somebody creating a piece of work i i have to feel like i understand the people the the geography of it the the landscape of what's going on i feel like i've got a better i'm in a better position to tell those sorts of stories than to fly off to somewhere else and 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 tell stories about people and experiences and lives that I don't really fundamentally understand or share. So, so that was kind of a conscious decision. It was kind of a, a mix of, of, of that reason but also the fact that, you know, I don't want to go halfway across the world when I've, got, when I've got to do the school run as well.
3: Hi. I'm Georgie Pinn, as you all know. Um, so I'm going to lead a different kind of style, Prezo. Um, that's a very Aussie Prezo presentation. Oh, sorry. Drama. I'll kind of fast forward through how I've come to this work. Echo, can I just ask, has everybody seen the work here or experienced the work, should I say? Okay, good. So I don't have to bang on too much about how it works and what it's like. Um So I'm a transdisciplinary artist. I've always worked in many fields in parallel, very mediums. And I create user-centric immersive installations. And generally I combine motion capture, animation and sound with storytelling to explore the notion of identity transition and empathy through empathy and compassion. My intention for most of my work, especially with Echo, is how can I connect strangers? How can I create connection? There's a beautiful quote by a writer called Mohsen Hamid. He's an Indian novelist and he says um, empathy is about finding echoes of another in yourself. And I really love that. That quote because it sort of resonates in, on so many levels and also refers to the title of Echo. We are not unidimensional beings, we're kind of multi layered and constantly morphing layers, and it all emanates from what, how we identify ourselves. My upbringing was very strange and eclectic. I lived in probably about 20 different countries and different cultures from a young age. And for me to survive in those cultures and those uh, dialects... ...some of them very remote, not even with schools or no television... ...I had to learn how to do one thing and that was to shape-shift. And so shape-shifting for me meant that I had a very strong capacity from a young age... ...to jump into somebody else's life, into their culture, into their language and, and adapt... And so I think this has been a huge part of my practice, why I use various mediums, sound, animation, and also why my focus is uh, empathy and how how can we open up those conversations. And so when I discovered OSC and Connects and Leap Motion and all these new technologies about probably seven years ago, it was a revelation. It was like, I don't have to... ...you know, push pixels uphill anymore. I can rig things and let the audience do it. Which was so exciting for me because, you know, I really think that... ...bringing the audience in and making them part of the work... ...has always been such an important thing for me. And uh, the idea of inclusivity, you know. Bringing people into galleries that wouldn't normally go into galleries... ...and generating kind of new forms of expression... ...where somebody who's never maybe created anything in their life... ...is suddenly creating something. And giving them that power to feel that they are valid. They have a voice. They have a style. They have a a way of moving and it makes the animation do this crazy thing. Um, That last piece where you see the kids moving the robots, you know... That was a wonderful piece that really started this whole journey... ...of looking at how you can embody the user... ...and how you can really bring them into the creative process. The children would come and they would design their own robots. So I'd design a whole range of different heads, bodies, arms, legs... ...and then they would select them... ...and then the character would pop up on screen just waiting... And they go, wow, I designed that. And just seeing their faces light up. And I remember one point a a young man who had Down syndrome, you know, was surrounded by all these kids who were jumping around and making the robots sort of move in real time. And he cautiously entered and I said, go on, you know, go in there. ...and he just stood there very quietly and he started... ...and he somehow tuned in to how that connect was working... ...and made these robots do things that I hadn't ever seen. He just tuned in to how subtly how to make them move. And... ...it was a beautiful thing. So that started this journey of really kind of like taking that into education. Did a lot of projects within schools called Electric Corpse... ...where I got children to draw characters... ...and then I rigged them and they came alive. And then they started making them talk and walk. And and then they made a script. And then we designed the backgrounds and they did the drawings... ...and then they did the sound effects. And at the end of it you have these beautiful animated films... ...that are made for children by children, 100%. So when I finished that project, what I realised that the facial tracking was the most embodying. It really did create an emotional connection beyond the body. And so that's where Echo started. I got a residency in a university and I developed Echo over a three-month period... And um, all of you have experienced the work. It's a a morphing self-portrait. It's a virtual mirror. And the intention of the work is to bring people closer and get people to connect intimately with other people that they would not meet in their normal physical world it was an experiment and it works I think and the first stage of it works so echo for me is um, there are a lot of intentions for the work and there are a lot of places where I'd like to take it but essentially it's like a war between narcissism and empathy You know, it's sort of the other end of the um, echo chamber of social media in the fact that instead of just communicating with people who all believe the same as you and all have the same political standpoint as you, you're forced to really get up close and intimate with people that you would never meet. And there's something beautiful about that because it challenges your biases. It challenges your prejudice and... um, ...and it makes you look at your own points of view in a different way. Also, the work, the stories that are involved, a whole season of them... ...they're all about vulnerability and it's kind of similar to Darren... ...what Darren was talking about, that idea of this incredible wisdom... ...and strength that comes from adversity and from suffering you really do sort of become more human and become a lot wiser. And if that can be passed on to other people, these experiences, you kind of fast-track that learning by jumping into someone else's shoes. You kind of – you go through that car accident with them, but you don't actually have to go through it. So I think in sort of closing, these immersive technologies can really help us kind of – become more transparent, we can really reveal ourselves in a safe environment and, and talk about our inner fears. We all have them. We all fear. We all cry. We're all, you know, we're all connected in the same way. So this work really highlights our similarities rather than our differences.
0: Let's go with this one. So I think you think a lot about storytelling mm-hmm. and the role of, like, storytelling. And I know that you originally wanted to... Uh, write down the stories yourself, but you ended up deciding to get other people involved in the project. And um, yeah, I wanted to play with the idea of fiction um, only because I was too scared to
3: go and talk to people, strangers. But then I lost my fear. Yeah, and it didn't work. Getting someone to write a story and then reenact it—it just—it was gross. It was really disgusting. I just blah, no. <laughs> It just felt inauthentic and the whole point of the work is, t- yeah. So, but that's part of the development. That's why I had three months to develop the work, mm-hmm. to try things. And I was trying to, you know, use different departments of the university, play with the acting and the writing and, the, mm-hmm. and just really explore what is this tool? How can I use it? And there are still more things that I can use it for, so.
1: So, I have a question for you both, Darren and Georgie. Do you need to answer at the same time? Together. No, you can answer individually, but it comes off the back of what Elia was talking about about story and storytelling and they're both really <laughs> successful documentaries. I mean, they've come from Sheffield Docfest, but you know, they're other things of course. But what I'd like to talk to you about or hear more from you is the selection and the trust from these people that you're working with and how you get around that and Talk to me about that. Talk to us about that.
3: I think what helps with Echo is that um, I can... I often get the person to experience the work first. And that gives context to it. They can kind of see, oh, right, okay, you're not just going to steal my soul and my story and, you know, sensationalise it or whatever. They see the intention of the work. So that gets me um, halfway there. And then you know through that then i mean a lot of the people within the project i know quite well anyway so i did cheat a little bit but um that's really just sort of starting you know starting that process yeah the trust thing is important especially today when we're all freaked out about deep fakes and you know ...getting our identity stolen and all that kind of thing. Um, But really the visual identity is just a tiny little bit of your identity. As I said, we're really multi-layered morphing creatures... ...and there's so many more things below. So, um, yeah, I think the intention of the work. Uh, There was one man, I'll just say... um, ...who has one story who went through one of the most horrific lives I've ever heard. And he's now a social worker. He's used all that learning, that suffering. You know, he's everything that you can think of that's bad, he did it. Or got put through it. And when he saw the work, he said, I need to give you my story. And I said, amazing, great. And he said, you know why? Because I can connect more people than my physical being enables me to. So that was... His form of trust, which I thought was really interesting, and he continues to heal other people through his story
2: for me, like obviously the people that are in these pieces of work are, are quite vulnerable, and uh, less so in common ground actually it's more of a community that in a way was a little bit they were very guarded uh, because the Ellsbury estate has been sort of used and abused in the in the media as a as a place where politicians grandstand or people will make urban films about gangs and stabbing and stuff like that, you know? Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, actually, on the Aylesbury, they're banned filming. And so you have to... One of the one of the things we had to do was, uh, I, well, I had to go down and meet with Jean Bartlett, who is the head of the, the chair of the Tenants and Residents Association, and she's also in the film. And so I went to a meeting, a tenants meeting, and I had basically five minutes to make my... Uh, my plea, and that involved also showing them Witness 360, so showing the work and getting them to understand what it's about was really important. And, you know, they basically, I think eventually that they sort of trust that, that, that you're not going to uh, sort of take the piss. But, I mean, one of the things that the people at Aylesbury said was like, don't just come here, make your piece of film, and then go and hang out with Guardian readers drinking white wine. Make sure that you bring it back here. Make sure that you involve the community. So we had uh, people from uh, the estate working on the piece, uh, young people that we were that that, that came, and it, maybe they're invest in, interested in gaming or filmmaking. Uh, and then obviously we we did an exhibition there at the ASC Gallery, which is a gallery at the bottom of the estate where all the residents came that were involved and. Really that was after, so it premiered at Tribeca in New York but the, but the showing at the Aylesbury was by far the most nerve wracking because if they didn't like it they would just very much tell you there would be no niceties and, 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 um, and they all really really loved it which is a relief and uh, we're actually showing it uh, this weekend at the Woolworth History Festival which is a local community festival and that's so we you know I think as much as it's about getting trust it's also about collaboration in many ways and you know, collaboration is a kind of a difficult word when you're making quite technically uh, complicated pieces of work, because sometimes a, it, it can sound a bit like lip service. But I feel like as much as we could collaborate in terms of in terms of representing people's stories, and especially on the Aylesbury, it's very divisive down there. And, you know, we we're talking earlier to Ben about how... Regeneration and social cleansing is a very, sort of to many people, it's a black and white issue, but actually it's all in the grey areas where the truth is, and it's not one thing. And so as long as you are trying to find the truth in that situation and trying to represent the nuance in it, then I think people can be at least thankful that you didn't go out and sensationalize their story, that you tried to find the, the essence of, of, of it. And I think with the earlier pieces of work, you know, they were quite vulnerable people. I have to say, actually, you know, making these pieces of work, the bit that I love the most, without doubt, is the connection to the people in the first place. Doing the interviews, going around to people's houses, getting to know them and becoming friends with them in some cases. And, and, and for me, that's been the most rewarding thing about doing all of this, really.
0: I'm going to bounce on what you just said, Darren. I think last time we spoke really briefly. And you were saying about how the moments that people connect the most with and like common ground is like the bits where people are talking about their personal memories and their personal thing that they're like and just kinda like this conversation that's really kind of nice, intimate conversation that you can relate to and how that is really what makes you connect the most. Like it's not uh, it's not about like well obviously it's about like the thing they're going through, but but we connect the most through their little stories and I wanted to know like what it was like for them because we're kind of like the way they're talking to us. You're really making it in the in the documentary where they're like really looking at you. You're present in in, in with them. So I'm imagining they're looking at the camera as if they're looking at the audience. And I just wanted to say, to know what it was like on their part too.
2: Yeah, I mean probably a little bit odd. I mean Conan was there as well. Um, we. Um, I mean, the way, if we, we did interviews in lots of different ways, and, and, and that was kind of very consciously, I wanted to make sure that we didn't just do uh, stand up interviews. Because with a 360 camera, obviously, you know, to do the interview and to have the eye line right so that you're looking at the person in the headset, they have to be looking at the camera, which means I have to be the other side of the camera and have to basically position my head, you know, down, down the eye line of, of the camera as well. So we're both looking at a round camera. Um, so that could be kind of odd, and there 's obviously the temptation always for for them to kind of try and get some eye contact. I mean again, I think those those stories started really with audio first and going to visit people, and then we shot stuff with them in situ because it 's important to be in the same environment as them and feel like they 're talking to you. But then we also <coughs> did interviews uh, on a normal camera. Uh, in 69 with a black backdrop, which we then projected into the space. And that was because 360 video, you have to be a certain distance away from the camera, and to get sort of some of those nuances in, in terms of facial expressions and emotion in the eyes and stuff like that, that, you, that we needed sort of another option. And that also kind of helped us, that technique, with things like archival contributors that normally in a documentary you would cut to. So if I'm going to go to the architectural historian, you know, we t- discussed this, like, you know, how would I do that in 360 without actually going and sitting with him in his office? Because I didn't want you to leave the estate. So once you enter the estate, you don't leave it. So it was about sort of filming those and projecting them into the building, into the fabric of, of, of the building that's around you. But, you know, those kind of moments that you pick up on in terms of the the sort of more personal moments. I mean, Jean, for example, who is the lady with the garden, I mean, she's the head of the Tenants and Residents Association, as I mentioned. She's very much, very vocal on the redevelopment of the estate and is, but is there trying to make sure that uh, the developers uh, are good on their promises, which has put her in a position where people on the other side of the argument feel that she's colluding, uh, which she's not. She's just doing what she feels is best for the community. And so we talked a lot about growing up in the estate, what it was like when it was being built, and eventually the, you know, the story came round to the more personal stuff about her husband, and and the garden and the marigolds, and and those and 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 those were the things that I sort of really sort of I, I don't know when I hear those sorts of things I start to kind of kind of wake up as a as a creator like those are the things that I I find interesting because they're the they're the things yeah so exactly the things that we can all relate to so no matter and you know we need more of that obviously we're in a very divisive sort of political landscape where you can forget that everyone has the same sort of foibles it is idiosyncratic sort of behavior little kind of habits and the things that we connect with on a human level are often just those sorts of things and not the big issues and if we remember that that, that it, it doesn't really matter if you're if you if you know what side of the regeneration venture on she's somebody who has lived there all her life her family have grown up there, her husband's died there, and she's going to lose that space. And that in itself is, is quite affecting.
1: I have a question about making work. And um, uh, I read, Darren, in an interview with you that you said you had one rule that you wrote down for Common Ground, and it was that you would, as a viewer of the work, you would never leave the estate. And I thought that was really interesting because for me, the estate has never really left me since seeing the work and it's the same with echo seeing the work and then hanging around and watching other people experience echo it's almost like i have a deeper connection to the stories that are being told so i just wanted to talk to you both about rules what's the key rule that you have in making your work and is consistent through your practice
3: I think that inclusivity of the audience really respecting the audience that that I'm not just making work cuz I feel like making that thing and I don't really care if people like it or not the creative process I'm always thinking empathetically about What's the audience going to think? How are they going to feel? And if I want them to feel that way, what's the best way to do that? Like, do I use sound or do I use animation? The whole interface of Echo was actually quite difficult coming up with, you know, normally with interactive works. It's a bit like, press that button and go over there. And it's really dry and cold and geeky. And I really wanted to create a journey like you know echo she's female she's lost in transition she's never quite forms and she's vulnerable she's trying to understand human emotion and in return she helps you connect so always trying to think it's really important to try and think about the audience and how they fit into that creative process
2: i mean so i'm not entirely sure i mean i i I guess it's a feeling more than anything when you're making something about the fact that you're doing it correctly. And I I think it's about interrogation, like serious interrogation of of what you're doing and why you're doing it. And sometimes I don't think that happens enough in in some stuff. But like it's common ground certainly, you know, because it was interactive, we we all played a part in the office in sort of trying to figure out what those interactive bits were going to be. And why we were doing them, you know I inherently wanted it to be a cinematic experience I, I wanted it to be embodied and I wanted it to be interactive, but I wanted it to be an embodied cinematic experience that that took you on a journey. I think when you start sort of designing interactivity for people to do, you you have to look at sort of well what does it mean if they do this who are they to, in, who are they embodying what does this mean in terms of the documentary Does it change the inherent truth of the documentary that you're trying to portray by creating some action within it so the interactive elements in there have been sort of really thought about quite heavily and they are from sort of the mundane I guess which are which is like pressing a button on a lift to cool down the next contributor to, to the more sort of um, the more enlightening or the or the deepening of the documentary in terms of something like we call the portal which is the the plan of the estate when you hold it up and look at the the what is a pre-visualization of what the estate was meant to be. So that interaction serves a purpose within the documentary. Uh, The spray can as well, you know. uh, Yeah, well, i kind of undenied about that a little bit in terms of what did it mean, really, to vandalize that space and whether it was considered vandalism. But it's interesting. I think it says, I think through interaction, it, it says something about the documentary in a way that it wouldn't have been able to without the interaction. Because most people that we see do it, it's been very rare that I haven't seen somebody just immediately look at a spray can in their hand and just spray the wall and enjoy it and have a smile on their face. And to me what that says is 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 it's it's a deeper comment on the space itself, the environment, the people that live on that estate, maybe young people that don't have the the investment that they should do, so that the estate itself becomes your canvas, it becomes somewhere where if you have a, a spray can, of course you 're going to spray on it because it's in, it, it, because it's it's uh, it's fun it's exp- and it 's expressing yourself it becomes your space, and you know because lots of people write their name or whatever and 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 through that you, you get i think you get a deeper sense of connection to to the people that live in that space or have lived in that space that may have found themselves there and thought fuck it I'll just spray this this wall and and why not? So you know for me that serves a purpose and, and, and so it's more than just you know like having fun. It's 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 something deeper. And I and I kinda like that and I you know in future work I want to go further with that. I think it's I think it's interesting. But you know it's all about sort of interrogation in that sense and, and making sure that you're doing it for the right reasons.
0: Georgie, you travel a lot with your work. You go everywhere it's going because you want to, like, gather more stories and make the archive bigger. So I want to just ask you about this process, like, what are you going to develop it to and where you want to take it next?
3: I have lots of ideas. Um, it just depends on funding. So the, the project is pretty well booked for 2020, internationally to run as it is growing the archive of stories and the more diverse, the more places it goes, the more diverse the stories become and then we have a really beautiful cross-cultural age archive of stories and then it really starts to do what it's supposed to do. I have some other ideas and experiments that I'd like to play with in terms of um, taking it into particular themes and subjects, whether that be human rights organisations, whether that be uh, experiments with politics, instead of leaving stories, asking a question. People answer those questions and then they have to wear somebody else's response to a political question, which I find really interesting and I'm really keen to try that. Does that change your point of view? when you see somebody with a completely different value system to yours speaking about something with your own face. Um, And then there are other layers of VR even that I want to play with. Um, But, uh, yeah, for now... What? Stay away. (laughs) Stay away. That's mine. Um, Yeah, so um, who knows? It just depends on funding.
0: No, it's really cool that you go everywhere it goes, though. That's really awesome. Because I wanted to ask about like the future of it, but at the same time, I know like by reading the interviews that I had online, it's, quite, it's like a historical piece quite a bit. Like there's a lot to it, and it feels like a like this archived footage. Like you've done a lot of research and like brought a lot of stuff together in it. So I guess I was just kind of like, so what's the future of it? So yeah, what like what do you want to do with it?
2: I can I can answer that in the sense of I mean we've got like what I'd say is like VR as you probably found out, it's actually really hard to exhibit and tour. It's a pain. But you have done it very successfully here, so hats off. Because uh, not everyone does. And and so we want to... We're planning to tour it basically for 18 months around the UK and trying to fit it into other sort of events that discussing similar themes, whether it be social housing, architecture, or, you know, stuff like that. Very sort of regionally around the UK. And so we're hoping to get funding for that. I mean, one of the ideas was to take it to communities, estates around the UK that are also facing regeneration and, and to help sort of facilitate discussions around that. I mean, I've, I've talked about this a lot with a couple of people that are, I just don't... The idea of doing a VR tour to um, you know, housing estates on its own is, is a shit idea because it's, because it's a bit tokenistic. So it, it, it's really about, again, interrogating why we would do that and um, and I think for me it's about it's about storytelling and, and and communities telling their own stories and trying to sort of facilitate through having common ground there the, the sort of discussion around archive that people have that people that, that that they keep and how we can help other communities tell their stories using audio and archive um, certainly not about doing VR workshops and, and trying to teach people unity and stuff like that it's it's um, it's really about just storytelling at its heart you know and I think archive does you know you mentioned archive it plays a massive role in this and it it was one of the key things about I think about getting this funded was was how do we use archive effectively in a vr documentary and so I'm pleased that we've done that and I think we've got more to do one of the things you know and add on to that you know I showed some earlier work there and indefinite the one about the detention centers you know I didn't realize really at the time that it was up to me to get that piece of work out there. I sort of thought like, oh, I made it. It's at Sheffield, so like everyone's going to see it. But of course, that didn't happen. And and really, and that was naivety on my part. But, you know, that piece of work needed to get to communities. There's a guy at the end who's in Middlesbrough. and He's from Sudan. He had been in detention for four years. And he's standing outside his house uh, with a tag on and they called them up there, they're like you know the northern terrace houses, and, and they called them red door houses because the Home Office painted them all, all the doors of the asylum seekers red, and, and therefore identified everybody that was asylum seeker. And so they, they were sort of kind of vandalized, had stuff put through their boxes and stuff. The Home Office realized this, by the way, and then changed all the doors to green uh, <laughs> because that's the kind of level of thinking you get at the Home Office. But the thing was is that that piece of work needed to go to that community because they're the people that need to see it and they're the people that need to understand that the person living next to them that they might feel as the other is actually somebody that's gone through something quite traumatic and is also somebody who have immense pride articulation you know intelligent and, and can be a real asset to the community. And I think having sort of failed to do that, although it's not too late, of course, but, but with Common Ground, you know, I made a real commitment to like, actually, we really need to get this out there. And the way to do that, obviously, is to really engage with funders, really really think about what you can achieve and, and, and do that,
1: yeah.
0: Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this. If you want to find out more about the alternate realities visit lighthouse.org.uk or chefdogfest.com. Sadly, this is the last podcast in the Alternate Realities series. I want to take this occasion to send a special thank you to Alex, Dan, Maria, Marta and Melanie, who work for Sheffield Dogfest. Thank you to everyone who came to the show and shared their reaction with us. And of course, I am very thankful to the artists Georgie Pinn, Darren Emerson, T. Uglo, and Maya Martin who have given us the opportunity to digitally meet with people worldwide and enable us to think and feel in new ways by sharing their awe-inspiring work with us. Thanks, of course, to the volunteers who gave their time to invigilate and install the show. Thanks to Gary and Mas, our handy technicians. This podcast was edited by Connor Clark. If you've enjoyed this as much as we have, please subscribe and rate us on iTunes it helps other people to find us. The Chef Doc Fest Alternate Reality Tour is funded by the Arts Council England. Thank you from the Lighthouse team.